when? When is a question that I think we all ask. When? In 1936, a 19-year-old Louis Zamperini was running the 5,000 meters in the Olympics, and then five years later found himself on a, a plane called the Green Hornet flying across the Pacific Ocean. Some of you might know Zamperini's story. A movie came out a few years ago called Unbroken. It tells the story of a young Louis who sees World War II take place, and instead of waiting to get drafted, he enlists in the, Amer- the Army Air Corps. His plane, the Green Hornet, was on a rescue mission to find another American plane that went down, and his plane had a malfunction, stranding them 850 miles off the coast of Hawaii. They crash-landed. Only three members of the crew, one of them being Louis, survived. They made a makeshift raft, and thankfully it rained enough. They had enough food to, to make it for a few days, they thought. But could you imagine just sitting on a raft, wondering when? Like, when is somebody going to find me? When is my food going to run out? When is my water going to end? Thankfully, it rained and some things, and they end up floating for 47 days. Imagine, 47 days floating on a Pacific Ocean, starved and dehydrated, sunburned and exhausted. I'm sure Louis just continued to ask, when? Well, their makeshift raft actually made landfall, the Marshall Islands. The problem was the Marshall Islands were controlled by the Japanese army. And so they, they, they land and they get immediately arrested and put in prison as prisoners of war. And for two years, Louis was a member of this camp, enduring just horrible circumstances. Can you imagine how many times for two years Louis asked, when? Finally, he was rescued. The war ended. He was, he was rescued, and, and he got to go home and, and recover. But no doubt had so many of those questions circulating in his mind. And I think for us, when is a question that we all ask too. Some of you right now, maybe in a season of life when you're asking when. When is my time finally going to come? When do I finally get noticed? When is the treatment finally going to end? When will that special someone come into my life? When, when, when? You know, and I, I think there's this reality that a lot of us kind of experience is that we, we look around at the world around us and we see things just aren't like we think that they should be. There's something inside of us that says, this is not what life should be like. There has to be more. There's got to be something else. Life can't just be this collection that I'm just waiting on, something else to change. And so I think what happens for us is when we ask the when question, we end up saying, well, I need to do something about it, and rightfully so. But often what happens is when we realize that things are broken, we try to fix it. But the problem is we don't know how. I think back to the summer of 2020. I think if there's a a picture of this, it's this picture right here, this picture of the streets on fire in Seattle. And I I think many of us, we, we watched the news and we checked Instagram or we were paying attention on social media and we're just wondering what What is going on in this world around us, in this country around us, when people are just literally setting the streets on fire? But I I think one of the things that we realize is that people realize that things were broken. The justice system seemed broken. That the political system seemed broken. 
the economic system. It just seemed broken. And so what do we do when things seem broken? We try to fix them ourselves. And one of the challenges I think we have as, pe- as people, as mankind, is we don't know how to fix the root issues, so we attack the symptoms. It's like going to the doctor and say, doctor, my leg is broken, and he gives you some Tylenol, right? might make you feel a little better. You have a crack in the road, and you try to repair it with super glue. How much is that going to fix the problem? I think there's this, this reality that we, we do. We try, to, we try to solve problems, and we look at the world, and we look at the symptoms, and we say, we live in a world full of racism and sexism and classism and all these things, and so we need to fix that, and so we attack the system, and we set the streets on fire. But I wonder, is there a different way? Because if we just attack the system, I think we miss the root problem. And the root problem that is underneath all of these issues that we see in life is sin and evil and death. And the problem is that you and I have, you might not know this yet, but you have this problem, is that we don't have the ability to fix sin, evil, and death on our own. So if we can't fix it, then what do we do? Do we just accept it? Do we just give up? Do we just trust that somebody else is going to make it right for us someday? See, for all things to be fixed, for all things to be made right, and should we, should we try to make this world a better place? Yes. But should we recognize that we don't have the power to fix the root issue on our own? And that answer is yes. We need someone other than us, somebody bigger than us, somebody stronger than us to come in and to fix what is ultimately broken. And the good news is that there is one who said that he would come and he would do that. That sin and evil and death would be vanquished. And this one said he would come when the time is right. If you've been with us the past 19 months, we've been working through a series called The Greater Story, seeing that God's word, the Bible, is God's revealed revelation to us, God's truth. This is light and, and giving us the way, the following God's way for us. It has been telling the same story from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. And we've been diving into this over the last 19 months in different series to help us see how it tells the same story, to help us understand how our Bible all fits together, and hopefully to drive us to spend more time in this because in the pages of this points us to the way that God would have us live and to the one who would come when the time is right. And so as we sit here and we, we spend time in, in God's word, we've come to the very end of the book, the very end of the greater story, the book of Revelation. And in this book, we see this letter written to seven very real churches in the late first century telling the story of what it would look like when the one finally came to make things right, to vanquish evil, to vanquish sin, and to kill death once and for all. And so we see John, the Apostle John, gets this vision of Jesus at the very end of the story in Revelation chapter 19 where we see that it all comes together. So I want to dive into this today. I want to look at Revelation 19. I want to see this picture of Jesus when he returns. If you grew up in church or you spent time in a, in a Bible camp or you've been to a Bible study, you might have heard of Jesus' second coming. Or you might have heard it talked about Christians say things about when Jesus comes back, and that just sounds weird. 
But what we're going to look at today is what the Bible tells us about Jesus's return. That Jesus came, we see in the book of, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. We see in the book of Acts that Jesus, after he rose from the grave, he left. He, he starts his church. He sends his Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us. And then he says, one day I will return to fix all that is broken. But in the meantime, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit so you have the power to work to fix it one life at a time while I'm gone. And now we see Jesus returning in this powerful way. So I want to I look here at Revelation 19. So if you have your Bibles, grab those. We're going to look at Revelation 19. And I want to see what it looks like when Jesus comes and why that matters for you and me today. So notice this. It starts in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John writes this. Remember, John has this vision that Jesus gives him. John writes this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed with fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? This picture of Jesus. I mean, notice all that imagery that we, we, we see that. This picture of Jesus with his eyes like fire and his robe dipped in blood and he's got tattoos on his thighs and like he's on, riding on the white horse. I mean, this is a really cool picture. You know, one of the interesting things about the book of Revelation, if you've noticed this, is there's this play on words that John does over and over again. So we see early on, I think it's Revelation chapter five, where John sees a lion, hears a lion, but he sees a lamb. And then John, and then Reve, sorry, Revelation seven, we see that John hears 144,000, but then he sees the multitude, too many to count. Well, if you look here at Revelation 19, before you get to this verse, John actually hears this celebration in heaven. Like, let's go, yeah, 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 woo-woo. And then he looks and he sees Jesus riding on this white horse. So, so notice that. John, he hears heaven cheering. And here's Jesus riding on this white horse. You know what it reminds me of? How many of you guys love Braveheart? Not nearly enough of you love Braveheart. But you know that picture? It's at the, near one of the, the end of one of the battles. And Mel Gibson's got the blue and white paint on his face, right? And he's riding around in front of the guys. He's cheering them up. And the guys are cheering, yeah, let's go. It's like heaven cheering Jesus on. Right? Jesus is ready for battle. He's ready to take on sin and evil and death. All the things that you and I know are the root cause, the root issue of all the sin and the problems we see in the world. We have this promise that one day Jesus will return to set it all right for good. And here you have heaven cheering and then you see this picture of Jesus. Let's go back to verse 11 again. I want you just to see this. Notice, just notice just this imagery, okay? Jesus is on a white horse. It's a symbol of victory and purity. Remember when Jesus rode, if you guys know the story in the book of Matthew, when Jesus rides in in chapter 21 on the triumphal entry, what's he riding on? A donkey. 
Everybody expected him to ride on a horse like a conquering king. He rode in on a donkey. Now he's riding in on the horse like the conquering king. So he's on a, he's on a white horse, symbol of victory and purity. He's, his name is, is faithful and true. It aligns with his character that Jesus is faithful and true. It says his eyes are like flames of fire. In the Bible, anytime you see fire, it's this picture of, of uh, divine judgment and purity. He's got diadems on his head. You guys know what a diadem is? It's like a crown with diamonds. It, it represents authority as a king, and his robe is dipped in blood. One of the great questions is, whose blood is it? We'll talk about that on the podcast. I can't tell you today. But could it be that it's his from when he went to the cross for us? Notice behind him are armies of heaven. And what are the armies wearing? They're white linens on white horses. Remember when he wrote to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3? He said, you need to take off your black garments and put on the white linens. Okay, so don't miss that. That's good. From Jesus' mouth is a sharp sword. Remember, Jesus is the word of God, the logos, John chapter 1. Jesus, from his mouth is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged what? Sword. And then on his thigh is a tattoo that says king of kings and lord of lords. Summarizes his supremacy. Anybody got that tattoo, by the way? Don't get it. It's only for Jesus, okay? You guys can't. There's a lot of other great choices, but not that one. Okay, now, now to make sense of what happens next. Okay, so we see Jesus. He's, he's coming in on the white horse. He's got his army behind him. And then in chapter nine, in verse 19 of chapter 19, we're going to see this. It says this, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So now imagine the picture, right? Go back to Braveheart. You've got, you've got Mel Gibson on the horse and the army behind him. And then you've got the, the, you know, the English army across the, the valley. So now you've got that picture here. You've got the beast and you've got the king of kings or the kings of the earth all rallied to battle against Jesus and the, heaven of, the armies of heaven. Now, to make sense of this, I need to go back just a little bit. There, there are three characters that we haven't really talked about yet in this, ser- in this sermon series, but it's all found in Revelation 12, 13, and 13. And, and here's the three beasts, or here, here's the three characters. The first one is the great red dragon. So in the book of Revelation, when John sees the great red dragon, he's referring to Satan, the, the devil. And so we, we, we see this uh, the great red dragon in verse 12. In, in Revelation 13, we meet the beast, okay? Who's this beast? Well, there's a lot of debate. If, if you've read the Left Behind books, it's the Antichrist, it's Nicholas Carpathia. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, there's a lot of debate on this, right? Is it a political figure? Is it a political uh, group? A lot of people will say, a lot of people especially hold that the tribulations kind of already happened, that they'll say that it was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the beast, and then in, verse, in Revelation 13, you also meet the false prophet. And the false prophet is this character that kind of enslaves people to the beast. The false prophet is the one that, that really encourages people to follow the beast and encourages them to get 666 on their foreheads and on their, on their hands. And so a lot of people will say that, well, if Rome was the beast, then Nero was the false prophet. That makes sense? And so there's this idea that there is this, this evil empire or this evil power, and then there's a group that's pushing people towards that evil power, right? And we see that in culture. I mean, last week, Pastor Mitch talked about just this culture we live in, this, this, how everything's kind of driving 
so much of our culture towards this sinfulness and, and becoming desensitized to just the evil in the world around us. And so you have this picture. You've got the dragon, the devil. You have the beast, this power, and you have the false prophet who is really enslaving people to the power. And wherever you fall on your eschatology of who that could be, what we know is that these are real characters that, that John foresees Jesus having to battle. And so that's what we see here in Revelation 19. We see what many think sets up the battle of Armageddon. Somebody say Armageddon. If you guys have read any books on the end times or watched any fun movies or anybody love Bruce Willis, you've probably seen, that's probably not what it's going to look like actually. But when I was in Israel this, um, this winter, I got to visit the hill of Megiddo. Somebody say Megiddo. This is the hill of Megiddo. Megiddo was a, a town that's about 10,000 years old, they think. And it's just had civilization after, or civilization after civilization live here. And in the Old Testament, you see all kinds of wars happen here. So Mount Carmel's just off to the side. Um, you, you'll, you'll see just, if you read your Old Testament in the book of Kings, there's just battle after battle happening in this valley of Megiddo. So in Hebrew... You guys want to learn something? Listen to Darren, but I'm going to try to teach you, okay? Somebody say har. Not like har, har. Not like pirate har, but har. That is hill. Megiddo. Megiddo. Har. Megiddo. Hill of Megiddo. Armageddon. You guys got it? Armageddon. So when, when you see this word, Armageddon, it's actually referring to this place. The Valley of Megiddo. This is the, so today, if you go to visit Israel, it's called the Valley of Armageddon, right? It's kind of cool. So this is where the battle for all things is going to end someday, right? Maybe. Maybe. All right, so here's Megiddo. And, and this is actually, you don't actually don't see the Battle of Armageddon referenced at the end of the book. You do see it referenced, though, in Revelation 16, when the seventh seal turns into the seventh trumpet, which turns into the seventh bowl, Okay. I know that makes a lot of sense. But so I want you to notice what happens. Okay, so now in this place, we got this picture that you've got the armies of the world lined up here. You got Jesus riding in on the white horse with the army behind him, right? And then notice the crazy battle that happens in the next verse. It's crazy. Notice it. Verse 20, and the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who is in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, do you guys see how crazy that battle was back and forth, right? No. No, I mean, like, it's interesting. Like, you, you kind of expect there to be a battle. Like, where's this battle of Armageddon, right? Where's that battle that you see in Braveheart or that battle you see in the opening scene in Gladiator when he's like, strength and honor, right? And they have that awesome battle. You don't see that here, do you? What do you see? You see Jesus coming in, the sword of the word out of his mouth, eyes on fire, robe dipped in blood, tats on his thighs, and he just wipes out the enemy. How many of you have seen Chronicles of Narnia? Not nearly enough. You guys, you guys need to work on your movie watching. Chronicles of Narnia, there's this scene at the very end of the book of Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, I should say. 
There's this amazing scene at the very end, right, where Aslan gives his life for Edmund. I'm going to ruin the story if you haven't read it yet, but it was written 70 years ago, so it's kind of your bad. <laughs> and so Edmund just is, you know, rebels against his brothers and his brother and sisters, and he gets, he goes and follows the white witch. The white witch enslaves him. She, um, in, in Narnia, if you... Um, commit treason against, As, against the white witch and against Narnia and Aslan, then you're worthy of death. And so she tells Aslan, hey, look, I'm going to kill him because he's worthy of death. He's committed treason. And Aslan says, I'll trade my life for his. And so Aslan goes and Aslan loses his life and Edmund is rescued. And so then we see the white witch mount against the, um, the, the good guys and the army of Aslan. And there's this battle. And in the meantime, you see Aslan rises from the grave. He's the Jesus figure. He rises from the grave. And so then you get this picture and this battle. And Edmund, he's this weak little dude, and he falls down on the ground, and the white witch is standing over him, and she's getting ready to, to, to spear him. And then there's this scene, and Aslan jumps over the rock and just wipes her out. There's no battle. She doesn't fight against him. She doesn't have the power to fight against Aslan. And that is the picture that we see here in the book of Revelation 19. You know, you and I sit here and we look at this broken world with all these symptoms and all this ugliness and we go, evil and death and sin is too big. We can't do anything about it. So we ought to just holy huddle and hang out with our own and give up because it's too hard. But Revelation 19 shows us that evil cannot stand against Jesus. That the devil that the beasts, that the powers of this world, that all of the dominion of darkness that we don't see, but the Bible says is real, that it cannot stand against the power of Jesus. That when it gets in Jesus' presence, Jesus just wipes it out. I've said this before. It's like when it's a really dark night and you open up your door and you have the lights on in your house. Does the darkness come into your house? It doesn't, by the way. You guys might not have done this experiment. Try it later. No, your light goes out. The light goes out and pervades in the darkness. This is what Jesus does. Jesus is the light. And John 1 says, the light came into the world and the darkness could not stand against it. And so we we see this beautiful picture here that evil cannot stand against Jesus. And and, and my guess is, some of you have asked this question before. You've asked the question, when, when you say when, you're just wondering, right? Like, Like, when are things finally going to get right? Like, God, when are you going to deal with this evil? Like, God, you you tell us over and over against your word that evil can't stand against you. When are you officially going to deal with it? Like, Jesus, you went to the cross. You died for our sins. You took my penalty for my sin and put it on your back. And now I have forgiveness. And then you rose from the grave and you defeated death. But it's still here. You save me and you call me now to fight against it, to push it back, but it's still here. Jesus, when are you going to come and fix it? Jesus says, here's when. I'm going to come. It's not for you really to know when, but just so you know that I will come. And when I do come, evil will not stand against me. See, sometimes we get this whole out of sight, out of mind thing, and we look around and we're like, Jesus, I don't see you working in our world. And Jesus is like, man, I'm working I'm behind the scenes. I'm working in the shadows. You just don't see it yet. And that's why we as God's people have to rally together to push back evil together. We have to know that we're not the ones that can vanquish evil on our own. We have to have Jesus, and he will one day 
do it. So I just want to know, where in your life do you remember, need to remember this right now? Where are you wondering when? God, when? When are you going to fix this problem? And Jesus says, I am fixing it. And there will be one day when I make it right. But here's the reality, guys. If evil cannot stand against Jesus then, then that means that evil cannot stand against Jesus now. So where do you need to remember that? That one day Jesus is going to wipe evil out, but that means today that Jesus can wipe evil out too in your life, in the life of your family, in your workplace, and in your neighborhood. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working through you. We don't have to just sit and wait and just twiddle our thumbs and read our Bibles under a tree and hope that one day, Jesus, you're going to come and just make it right. Jesus says, I want to make it right now, but know that I'm going to come and I'm going to make everything right someday. Okay, so back to Revelation here. You see verse 20, or Revelation chapter 20 now. So remember, he, he, he took out the beast and the false prophet. Notice this now. He's going to take out the dragon. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Verse 2. And he, Jesus, seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Somebody say, let's go. I mean, Jesus just rolls in and grabs up the dragon. I mean, I can kind of see like swinging him, right? You know, like you guys remember Thor or not? Yeah, yeah. No, the Hulk. You guys remember the Hulk and the first? You guys know what I'm talking about. Anyways, he's like body slamming the devil and whatever. And then he chains him up and he throws him in this pit for a, a thousand years. This thousand years is known as the millennium. Somebody say millennium. millennium. Not millennium falcon, millennium. So different genre. Okay, so this is the millennium, and this is probably the most controversial part of the book of Revelation. Like, we could spend a whole hour talking about the millennium, but here's what you need to know is it stands for a 1,000 years, right? 1,000 years equals a millennium. Millennium equals a 1,000 years. There's a lot of debate around this. I encourage you to go read it or listen to our podcast this week. That's two plugs, actually, for the podcast. All right, so, but here's the question around this. Is the millennium a thousand years, like literally, is it literally a thousand year period? Is it a symbol for a long period of time? Or is it a symbol for the completion of judgment on evil? You have to decide on your own. Something that you should study and read and pray about to decide on your own. But here's the good news. It's not essential to your faith that your view on the end times and the rapture and the tribulation and the millennium is not a die issue. You can believe in Jesus and have a conversation with someone who might believe the millennium is not a full thousand years, and you believe it is. So does that make sense, guys? These are not things to divide over. These are just things to discuss. And so but what we do see is that it's referred to as Satan is thrown in a bottomless pit and chained up for a thousand years. And then we see that he's released and there's another battle. Now, here's what's interesting. I want you to notice this. In, in Scripture, we see the Holy Trinity we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you notice how evil always tries to echo God? It always tries to give us a false view of God to steal our affections. Who did we see here? We see the dragon, we see the beast, and we see the false prophet. How many is that? Math class? So it's the, called the unholy trinity, trying to mirror, trying to mirror God. And so we see that Jesus has taken care of the first two. Now it's time to take care of the devil. He does it in reverse order. Notice this, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So whether it's a full thousand years, whether it's just a picture, whether it all happens at once, what we know is that Jesus defeats evil and justice is served. You know, there's just that question that exists when we ask the question, when? And that question is, like, when will we finally have justice? And we see it right here in Revelation chapter 20, that justice is fully found in Jesus. That all this brokenness around us, all, all these things, all these symptoms we see, all the things that we are working hard to push back against and to fix, that Jesus is someday going to set everything straight, that he's going to come and he's going to restore it all back to the way that it was meant to be. He's going to kill sin and death and evil completely. But I want you to notice something interesting. This the story doesn't end here. There's more in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. And it reminds me of the famous uh, Michelangelo painting, The Last Judgment. Anybody ever seen this? Anybody been to the Sistine Chapel? A few hands. This is painted on the wall by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. And you can't zoom in enough, but I'd encourage you to Google this later. Go to Google Images and look at this. There's so much going on. This is Jesus up here at the top with the kind of the white circle behind him. At the bottom, you have Jesus on the cross. And then you have the devil. You have demons being tormenting people. And then you have all this like kind of scene in heaven. And then you have all these people around here. And, uh, you know, there's more demonic activity, more evil activity going on down here at the bottom. And then you just got this group of people in the middle. And it makes you wonder, okay, so what happens to all the people? Like Jesus has come and he's taken care of evil and sin and death and he's killed the devil and all of the bad guys. But yet, what about all the people? And that's what we actually see John address here in Revelation 20. Because I don't know about you, but I want to ask the question when, in, in, the, in the heart of the question when is, God, when are the people that have done evil and have hurt all of us, when are they going to get their due? Right? Like when do people like, Hitler, Pol Pot. Like, when, when are these people really going to get their due for all the bad and all the sin in, in the world? And is, is Jesus going to just kind of wipe out evil and the devil and then just kind of everything resets? And then what happens then? I want you to notice what happens in Revelation 20, verse 11. It's what scholars call the great white throne of judgment. Notice this. John says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. See, it seems that there's this this picture that someday that we're all going to stand before God. That all of us are going to stand before God, and God's going to look at us. He's going to say, what did you do with your life? What did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the time that you had on this earth? And whether you said yes to Jesus or you didn't, you're all going to have that, we're all going to have that opportunity to stand face to face to Jesus, with Jesus. And let me ask you, is that an exciting thought for you or is that a scary thought for you? Notice what verse 15 says. It says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's the same place that the devil went the same place that the beast and the false prophet were. It's scary. Anybody ever skip school? 
You guys were like, heck, no way, man. All right, we got one honest person over here. So I got, I got busted for skipping school in high school in my junior year, and I got called in the principal's office, and he said, hey, so where were you yesterday? You know, and of course, I'm making stuff up as I can go. And, and he's like, your name wasn't on the roll. And so I need you to, you have a choice. You can either go to detention and stay in detention for the day, or you can do 100 push-ups. And I was like, 100 push-ups, sir. You know, just like pumping them out real quick. But reality, my name wasn't on the roll. I got in trouble, and it was what it was. I had to face the discipline. Now, that's a lot less dramatic than what we see here in Revelation 20. But nonetheless, if your name isn't written on the roll of the book of life, John sees this picture of God judging everyone. I mean, it's this great white throne of judgment. And imagine you, you're brought in and you, it, Jesus has conquered everything and you're standing there. Now he's sitting there and he looks at you and you walk up to him and he says, hey, tell me what you did with your life. What are you going to say? What defense are you going to give? The reality is none of us can give a good enough defense. Hey, Jesus, I tried really hard. Did you? Hey, Jesus, I tried to be better than my neighbor was. Were they a good standard? Jesus, I, I really wanted to. I kept saying I was going to say yes to you. Man, life was busy. I was just waiting until I got retired, until my kids got to high school, or until I had enough money in my bank account, whatever. And Jesus says, yeah, but did you? So there's this reality that we see here in Revelation 20 is that what defense can you give against an all-holy God who came and died for you and offered you the free gift and said, all you have to do is say yes. Here is the free gift. You can be saved by grace through faith, and all you have to do is say yes. And you said no. What defense can you give? You can't. Just like I couldn't give a defense when I got caught skipping school. We can't give a defense. But here's the beautiful thing. I want you to notice the opposite. Verse 15, it says, If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is the opposite? is that if your name is found in the book of life, you are welcomed into the presence of God forever. You know, what the Bible tells us is that when Jesus looks at you in that final day and he says, tell me about your life, and they look at the book of life, hey, tell me your name, Drew Tarwater, he finds it. Oh, yeah, I don't have to give him a description. It says that what he sees is, redeemed, rescued, saved, forgiven. I don't have to give a defense because if your name is written in the book of life, your name is in, you are on the roll. Jesus is like, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. You don't need to give me an account for what you did for your life because you let me pay for everything that you did and we have exchanged your sin for my righteousness. You are now justified. Big theological term, I have imputed my righteousness to you. And we can stand in front of Jesus at that, at that moment in time and not be afraid. We can stand in front of Jesus at that point in time and know that we are good to go. And it's a slam dunk because Jesus rescued and saved our souls. Isn't that good news, church? It's so good. Such good news. And so... One of the themes we see in the book of, in the entire greater story in the, in the Bible is that there's this responsibility that we have to believe. 
that God, yes, he is sovereign and he is in control, but each of us have the responsibility to believe. We have the responsibility to act. Somebody else's faith can't save us. See, I think what we see here is that the most important question we will ever answer is, did we trust and follow Jesus? I got to tell you, last night I was at home with my girls and, and Courtney, and we were having a little devotion before bed. And I was, this was fresh in my mind, so I was telling the girls about when Jesus comes back. He's going to come in on a white horse, and he's going to vanquish and slay the, the dragon and the bad guys. And, and then there's going to be this moment later where they come to the great throne of judgment, and God's going to pull out the book of life. And Chloe, my little six-year-old, she looks at me, and she goes, Dad, what's the book of life? And I said, well, babe, it's the book where if you've said yes to Jesus, your name is in that book. And she said, well, how do, we get, how do I get my name in that book? And I said, Dad, I'm like, right? Because I've been sensing lately that Chloe's been asking the questions and, you know, that I feel like she's been just having this tug that we're having these God conversations. And so I say to Chloe, well, the way that you get your name in the book of life is that you ask Jesus to be your savior that you repent of your sin and, and ask Jesus to come into your life and, and to, to be the, the king of, of your life. And she said, okay. And I said, do you want to do that? And she said, I do. And I was like, okay, let's sit down. Let's have a conversation. And so I asked her all the questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the grave and that you can have new life in him? Yeah, Dad, I, I believe that. I said, okay, so I'm going to say a prayer, and I want you to repeat it after me. But know that it's not the prayer that saves you. Know that it's not the words that you say, but it's your heart. I want you to mean it. Do you truly believe it? Yes. So I had the chance to lead my little one last night to put her faith in Jesus. <laughs> Praise God. It was so beautiful. And she's probably told like half of you in the lobby already. She's super embarrassed about it, but yet she still wants to tell you. She's like, Dad, can I get baptized at Summer Splash in the soapy water? I was like, we might have to wait on that. But, but I mean, it, the reality is that there's only one standard by which God judges us. There's only one standard by which God looks at our hearts, and there's only one way that we can actually be saved, and that isn't because we work really hard and we try to be good enough or we prove that we can memorize enough Bible verses or that we can go to church or we can do enough good in a community. The standard is that we say yes to Jesus. I love how Mitch said it last week. We don't need to ask Jesus to be king. Jesus is king. We just need to align ourselves under his kingship. And Chloe did it last night, and I want you guys to know that if you... If you imagine that moment when you're standing in front of Jesus at the end of time, and he asks, what did you do with your life? Can you say, I said yes to you, and be confident, and be excited about that moment? Because you're going to be face-to-face with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, with the tattoo on his thigh that died for you on the cross. Or are you afraid of that moment? Because you're not sure that you're going to get in. You're not sure you can answer that question. If you're afraid of that moment, then I'd say let's make it right right now. Don't, let, don't leave today without making sure you are right with Jesus, by making sure that you have said yes, that you have repented of your sin to say, Jesus, I am sorry for trusting that my way was right. My way clearly isn't right, but I believe that your way is. 
that I trust and believe in you. Come into my life and be my Savior. If you say that simple prayer with the heart behind it that means it, the Bible says that you will be saved, that your sins will be forgiven, and that heaven will one day be your home. And then you're going to be reminded of this beautiful promise that God came to rescue you. Before we end, I want to catch my breath real quick. Revelation 21, I want to just give you a picture of what Jesus came to do. Jesus kills the devil. He defeats evil. He defeats sin and death. And then notice Revelation chapter 21. We just sang about it. John sees this vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus came down. He wipes all the evil out. He makes things right. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You guys, you guys realize that the reason God doesn't dwell with man is because of sin and the bridge that has divided us from sin. But Jesus makes everything right. When we are made right with God because we have trusted in Jesus, we can now live with God. And then one day Jesus will come and make everything right so that a new heaven and a new earth will be ours to live on forever. And it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Notice what he says next. This is so good. And that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be known. The American dream, we buy into this idea of financial freedom. We buy into this idea of all these things. But, but ultimately it's this. It's that you can live in relationship with your heavenly father, that you can live in relationship with Jesus, the one who loved you so much, and experience life the way it was meant to be. And I think what John wants us to see as we near the end of this story is that Jesus always keeps his promises. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your struggles are in life right now. But Jesus, he always keeps his promises. Louis Zamperini, I, I mentioned to you that he was floating on the Pacific Ocean for 47 days. And he tells his story that during those 47 days, he, he, he made this promise to God that while he was floating on the water, he prayed to God and said, God, if, if you will rescue me from this, I will give you my life. I will serve you the rest of my life. So for 47 days, he floated. For two years, he was in a POW camp. And he gets released and he goes home. And then he, when he gets home, he gets healed up and he goes to a Billy Graham crusade. And it was at the Billy Graham crusade that he remembered his prayer. He remembered his prayer. Jesus, if you rescue me, I will give you my life. He, he remembered that Jesus was a promise keeper, that Jesus keeps his promises because here he is. He's been rescued, he's been redeemed, he's been brought out of this situation and he realizes, okay, it's now time for me to keep my end of the promise. And so right there at that Billy Graham crusade, he gets saved. He, he says yes to Jesus. And he goes on to be a, a Christian public speaker. He starts the Victory Boys Home in California, Victory Boys Camp in California for troubled youth. Spends his life talking about the goodness and the promise keeping of God. See, there's something that happens inside of us when we realize that God has kept his promises to us. 
when we realize that God is who he, he says he is, and that's this, that, that God, we realize that God truly is a, a promise keeper, that you can trust him. That no matter how bleak things look, that no matter how difficult things look, no matter what your situation of life you're going through, is that God promises that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, he will never abandon you, that he will stand by your side and never be more than an arm's reach away. And that when the time is right, he's going to come and he's going to make everything right. But until then, Jesus says, I will give you everything you need now to push back evil now, to push back the sin in your life now, to fight against the death now. But we can't just sit and wait. We have to realize that God is calling us to something more. So that's what I want to end today with is where is God calling you for more? Where is God calling you to stop focusing on the symptoms, to stop pointing fingers, to stop just talking about it, but to get involved in the root issue of sin and evil and go to bat for Jesus, to let Jesus use you to push back evil and sin until that beautiful day when he comes to make everything right again. So this week, that's my challenge for you. Who and where in your life can you be on mission with Jesus to push back the dark by opening the door and letting the light spill forward? Let's be the church Jesus created us to be and realize that it's not just when, but Jesus is moving now. Would you pray with me?